On the podcast with us today is Jerome Myers. Jerome, welcome to the podcast. Dan, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to diving into this 20-unit property called the Myers Point at Greenbrier, which is located in Greensboro, North Carolina. So, But before we get started, I would like for you to give the listeners a little bit of a background about yourself and where you are right now in this multifamily space. Dan, so we jumped into real estate full-time back in 2016. Years prior to that, we were lending private capital to fix and flip investors while we worked a W-2 job. Got a background in engineering and project management. Also got a graduate degree in business. And multifamily got extremely attractive to us in the fall of 2016. We looked around and we saw what everybody was doing, whether they were wholesaling, fix and flip, or buying and holding single family homes. And all those things looked like jobs. And for us, we were looking for something that was scalable and something that allowed us to purchase a business. Early in my engineering career, I wanted to go back to law school and become an M&A guy, do mergers and acquisitions for businesses. And I'll tell you that multifamily has been a dream for me because it allows me to put all my skills together and actually go out and buy businesses that are backed by real estate or hard assets. And it's a bankable product. We've just been excited about it ever since. Well, that was what I was going to connect up was, is to say, yeah, really, that's what you're buying. I tell people all the time that at the end of the day, we're buying a business that has real estate associated with it, which just sweetens things up for us and makes it a lot nicer and a lot more, you know, like you said, it has a real estate attached to it. So it's a lot safer than just buying, like I say, a car wash that doesn't necessarily have any real estate associated with it. So I would definitely agree with that for sure. Yeah, man. Super excited about it. And just seeing the property. so. I think we're into our fourth deal with our fifth under contract right now. And just seeing the cycle and seeing how things happen in multifamily is just, it's kind of mind blowing when we get down and think about it. We did a webinar about a week and a half ago with a small group of folks to try to walk them through the process so they can understand what actually goes into kind of what I call taming these wild animals, right? These properties usually are being mismanaged and mistreated. And so when we get our hands on them, we got to tame them. And it's like a buck and bronco when you first get it. You don't really know what you get until you get into the deal. And then once you get in the deal, you can really understand kind of the, the temperament of the property, where it's been neglected, and then you can start loving on it. And hopefully it'll reward you with some profit after making the investment in the property and the people. And I mean, this property is a prime example of that. Well, let's dive into this property. So again, just as the 20-unit property is located in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I want you to get us started on this and talk to us about how did you source this deal? Great. So this was direct mail, believe it or not. So we picked a list of about 200 multifamily properties in the Guilford County, which is a county seat for Greensboro, North Carolina. And we sent letters out to all of the owners. And we got about five calls back on that. And we went out and met with each property owner. And this property kind of rose to the top. This guy owned this property. We also bought an eight unit off of him. And he owned a few pieces of commercial property and a couple of single family homes. But this was kind of our, our entry into the market, I'll say, where you know we were able to get what I thought was critical mass and from door standpoint and really make an improvement to the community and the property in particular. 
So once you, you know, found out about this deal, where did you go from there? So the first step was going and meeting with the property owner on site, right? And we just did a walk around tour, got an understanding of what he was looking for out of the property. And then from there, went back after I understood kind of what things were leasing for and what kind of occupancy he had, did a financial model, put a value on the property, sent over a letter of intent to the owner. He accepted it, even though it was a little bit lower than what he was asking. And so what then, was he what was he originally asking? He was asking eight sixty, which I can't remember what that breaks down to per door, but he was asking eight sixty. We came back at eight forty and that came back up when we got to the closing table, but we was basically 20,000 right off the rip where we said, you know, this asset isn't worth everything that you're asking for. So he's asking for 43 a door and you're, you brought it down to 42 a door. Yep. And what was it? And I know we might be jumping the gun a little bit here, kind of going, jumping around a little bit, but sometimes that's how these, these questions come yeah. out. But so what was it that made you go from 860 to 840? make the offer, him accept it, and then to go back up to 860. So we never went back up. What made us go to 840, we, the asking price is nice, but it is meaningless to us unless it's less than what we're willing to pay for the asset more often than not. Mm -hmm. So when we put things in the model, did some conservative assumptions based on the fact that his record keeping wasn't tight. I mean, this was true mom and pop where the owner is doing management and Jimmy rigging certain things and not really making an investment in a property. So we made an offer based on what we thought we could operate the property as. And so some of that was using his existing, his reported expenses, and then using our rules of thumbs and experience to make adjustments on whether or not, you know, that was an actual accurate number. So with going from 860 to 840, though, does that really make that much of a material difference on the returns? It's just just $20,000, $1,000 a door, right? Right. So it made a difference from the standpoint of debt service coverage ratio. So in our buying discipline, we look for 1.5 on our debt service coverage ratio. I know banks are at 1.2, 1.25, or 1.3, depending on who they are. But it was the thing that pushed us over the threshold our biggest hurdle right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we did. So the numbers basically didn't make sense once you went that additional thousand dollars a door. Yes. Right. Okay. Yep. And so it wasn't really from a lender perspective, but it was really just from an internal kind of, you know, these are our numbers that we're trying to get at. And if we can't get there, then, then we just pass on the deal and move to the next one. Yeah. And you know, the bank will lend to you, but if you can't make a return for the investors, kind of what's the point in doing the deal. And so sure. for us, it was, we're pretty stringent on making sure that we meet our numbers because what we found is people will overpay. And then if your cost basis is too high, you can't fix that later. They're outside of maybe the market saving you by paying a little more in rent, but we call that speculation and that's not what we're okay with doing. Sure. What was the projected hold period on this one? We are looking at seven years on this one. Okay. Seven year hold. And what did you project as far as returns are concerned? Overall, I think our cash on cash is about 20%. We didn't report or we didn't plan on doing much of a return in year one just because of how aggressive the reposition was. But after that, once we were able to get our rents up, 
because we were in the eights, we were able to really get aggressive because I think our average rent. So in year two, our rents went basically to 650 and that was 27, 26.99, 27% in year two, which will be starting in July. Um, okay. And as far as uh, the cash on cash, 20%, that's averaged out over the seven-year period, correct? Yeah. And that's because we're struggling in year one, right? We're, sure. we're not producing much. What about the IRR? What's the projection on that? IRR is showing 51.9%. That's phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, because of where we bought, like we bought right on the edge of one of the wealthier communities in Greensboro. and you had a previous podcast guest that bought pretty close to where we are. And so there's a Harris Teeter, Chick-fil-A, and you know how they kind of trend their demographics. So you got to have a little bit of wealth in the community in order for those places to, you know, drop a store Mm -hmm. in the area. There's also a really nice class A building that actually backs up to our property. And, you know, that thing is renting for, I don't know, $1,200 a month. And so we feel like we bought a C in a B area. Mm-hmm. And we, what we really want to do is make it a B and a B. So what was the entry cap rate on this one? The entry cap rate, you know, it's funny you bring that up, Dan, because we don't, we don't look at it. But what I can tell you is their NOI going in was 75000 and that was the, we paid eight forty. So I understand not looking at the entry cap rate, uh, basically trying to base your decision on it. But when you're basing your exit, you have to kind of know where your entry was, or at least kind of know where you're going to make the exit cap. So what did you guys project as far as an exit cap? On the exit cap, I just want to double check and make sure I get it right. So we put in 8%. So you're going to lower the cap rate? Yeah, we always do. I mean, even if we improve just our modeling method, to make sure that we're conservative and we don't disappoint our investors. We mm-hmm. model conservatively. If we come out at a seven cap or six and a half cap, which I think is more likely, then they'll be screaming happy when they see the actual sales price on the property. Mm-hmm. I'm just looking at the entry cap rate though, and you're actually going from an 8.9 and you'd be going down. So you'd be lowering the cap rate, saying that the market's going to improve when you exit, correct? So... Hold on for one second. Let me double check one number. But yes, if the math worked out for that being an 8.9 cap, we know that the property was not performing at an optimal level. Mm-hmm. There, the occupancy was at 80%. Reported occupancy was at 80%. It turned out that economic occupancy was only 65% in the first couple of months. How much was it? 65%. 65, wow. Yeah. So what happened was we had four vacancies that we knew about. So that took us to the 80%. Three people moved out in the first month and didn't notify us. So we just kind of got ghosted on that. And then, well, I'll take that back. Two people moved out and then one person wasn't paying at all. He was on some type of assistance program. And the previous owner told us that there was an issue. And the property manager that we were using at the time wanted to work with them. And so he made promises to pay, but long story short, we spent six weeks messing around with the guy. He never paid a penny. And so Mm -hmm. 
first month, we ended up with 65% occupancy. Mm-hmm. So the economic was at 65%. What did you say the physical was? 80. 80. Okay. And so going into the cap rate, you said you projected an 8% exit? Yes. Okay. And the average rents right now, what are they? Because I know you'd mentioned year two would be 650. Yeah. So we just got up to 600 as of last month. Okay. And so we'll do another increase as all the leases um, turn this month or turn over the next few months. And when did you close on this one? We closed in July of 2018. Okay. So when you closed in July of 2018, what were the, where were the rents then? He was charging 500 across the board. Okay. Just 500. And what's the unit mix? It's all two bedroom, one and a half bath townhomes. And these are townhome style you said? Yes. And what kind of CapEx did you project on this one? Man. So that we projected $6,000 a unit, but we only projected turning four to three to four of them. Mm -hmm. And I just finished turning my 13th one. Wow. So how were you able to do that if you only were doing 6,000 per unit? Did you do like a smaller amount per unit or how did you do that? So I'm a licensed contractor. So I managed some of it and kind of donated my time to get rid of some of the overhead. Mm-hmm. And then we overfunded because one of my partners is extremely conservative. And so he wanted a nice amount of money sitting in the bank. So we had that. And then we also took money from cash flow since we ended up growing income more than what we expected it to be. We were able to flow some of that out of cash flow. And so for the 6,000 per unit, what were the interior or exterior or both that you were planning on? Let's just start with the interior first. So interior, we got new appliances, new countertops, new flooring in the kitchens and the bathrooms, mm-hmm. both the half and the full bath. We recruited the tubs, painted the entire unit, and replaced the vanities and toilets. And what's the average, or I guess they're all the same size. So what is the size of the floor plan? 900. Okay. I would say you definitely got a lot in there for that 6,000 per unit. What kind of appliances did you put in there? Was uh, it stainless so, steel, black, white? No, no, no. We did white. We did white. The thing that tripped us up, though, is that the cabinets are short. Like the space in between the floor and the cabinets are short. They didn't do a, over the over the refrigerator cabinet. and so. We had to go with like a 15 cubic foot refrigerator instead of the regular size. And that actually costs more than getting like a regular size 18 cubic foot. Hmm. So that part was a challenge for us. But since we only have range in a refrigerator, we were able to, you know, stay around $1,000 instead of having to deal with the microwave overhead or the dishwasher. So there was no dishwasher, no microwaves. The appliance package is the refrigerator and and in the range. Correct. Okay. And as far as counters are concerned, what did you replace the counters with? So we went back with more Formica and that was mainly because of the cash issue. Mm -hmm. If I could do it all over again and if I have budgeted better, we go with granite just because you never have to touch it again. And do you think that that level of return would bring it from that C where it was to that B plus that you wanted it to be? I think with, with the countertop selection, 
Well, just with the whole package. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a totally different place. Absolutely. For what we're doing in Greensboro, and we didn't go with like, we went with the granite look on the countertop, right? It's the Formica, but it's a faux more granite. expensive one. It's faux granite. It's got grain in it, kind of a creamy white undertone with the grays and the blues running through it. So it's a really nice product. It's just, you know, it's not real granite. So sure. You have to deal with the water issues and the other stuff that come with Formica. Well, let me ask you this. What's the vintage of this product? When was it built? This product was built in the late 70s. I think 78 was the actual build. Date. Okay. So popcorn ceiling? No, flat. It is flat. Okay. Had it ever been renovated before? Not that I'm aware of. And based on the stuff that I've seen, no. I mean, they may have done flooring here and there, but not a true renovation, more of a turn situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what did you plan for as far as the exterior is concerned? As far as so there were some gutter issues that we needed to fix. We relocated the dumpsters. And so we had to pour a new path for the dumpsters to go on. Signage, landscaping, painting of the doorways. So mm-hmm. that wasn't part of the unit turn. Shutters, we painted and replaced shutters. And I think those were the big things, man. Um, and what did you budget for the total exterior? We didn't separate it. We just do it on kind of a per unit basis and kind of. So the total all in was basically $24,000. So it was like 6000 You said you predicted doing four units? Yeah. Well, 6000 but then we had money in for escrow reserve or. We wanted to keep three months of projected expenses in the bank and so on and so forth. So yeah, initially we were expecting something like 24,000, maybe even 30. We like to round up from time to time mm-hmm. um, and then go from there. Mm-hmm. So on the 13 that you, she said you've done 13 now? Yes. Okay. So of the 13 that you've turned so far, you're now getting 600? So you're getting yeah. a $100 rent bump on those? Well, we're getting more than that actually. So... New leases are ranging from 615 to 630. Okay. And then there's a couple that brought their own appliances. And so we gave them, a, I think we gave them like a 20 or $30 deduction on the base mm-hmm. rent. But yeah, I mean, new leases are being written 615 to 630. And I met with my property manager yesterday. And because of the properties around in the area that they manage, they're getting a little over 700 for that. So we're going to go to 650. We might even push 675 and see if we can get it. We just turned, we just finished two more units. So we'll see what we can get when we go to market with those. So how do you work that out when somebody brings their own appliances? Because I've never heard of that before. So what we were doing, and this is a Mr. Landlord strategy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but we would show the units without appliances, no range, no refrigerator. And then we would ask the resident on the tour, do you have appliances that you want to bring or would you like for us to supply them? And that was an upsell if they wanted us to supply the appliances for them. But since we didn't have the power on in every unit when we did our inspection, I missed that some of the appliances were not functioning. And so Mm -hmm. those four units that were vacant, the appliances didn't function. Basically, the landlord or the previous owner took appliances from those units and put them in units where people were actually living Mm. and put the units that weren't functioning back in those. So he showed appliances that weren't functioning, which 
Well, that's a good lesson to learn because, you know, as somebody's listening and they're looking through each one of these units and they're doing their walks, don't just make sure the appliances are there. Look them on, turn them on, make sure that they actually work. Yeah. And so we had a third party inspector on it and he goes through that if the power's on, but if the power's not on and what we learned kind of the hard way is if the landowner or the, the property owner isn't responsible for utilities, they probably don't have the utilities on outside of winter, right? Because mm-hmm. the pipes might freeze in the winter. Yeah. But we're buying this thing in July. There isn't a whole lot of reason to pay for a power bill to air condition a unit that nobody lives in. And so we didn't force that and we should have, and we do now. Mm-hmm. And so as far as property management, what are you doing for property management right now? Yeah. So we had a third party property manager and that went really bad early on. So the first few months we thought they were going to be able to execute the business strategy that we came in with where we were going to renovate units, upfit them, make them nicer. From our perspective, it was just a heavy turn. They didn't have the resources to do it. And so that's how I ended up jumping in and trying to get things moving. And we were able to do that successfully through the fall and into the early winter. And then the property started to turn and we were starting to see more and more revenue come in the door. And then in March, we decided to terminate them. And this is another great thing for your listeners. In our contract, we had an early termination clause with the property manager. And because we didn't follow the contract to the letter, they exercised their early termination fee. And so they charged me for three months of rent, even though they failed to perform on the vast majority of the things that we asked them to. They couldn't meet our construction schedule. They were running a property at basically a 55 to 60% expense ratio month after month. They were asking us to do work orders that were not needed. For instance, a lot of people do the step counting method for deciding whether or not you need a handrail or rails around the porch since we have the landings for each unit. And you know, they told me we needed to put in $1,500 worth of handrails. And the reality was there was only one handrail that needed to be installed. And so it was just a plethora of issues that just kept coming up. And we decided that it was best to move in another direction. And so when we shared that with them, we were expecting them to be reasonable about it. And from our perspective, they absolutely were not reasonable. We were completely dissatisfied with what they did. They failed on a number of things that were most important or were important to us from a performance standpoint on the property. And they felt like they should be paid another quarter worth of fees without doing any other work. And there wasn't anything that we could really do about that. So looking back, when you first acquire this property, what did you do initially to do your due diligence or vet this particular property manager that maybe you saw was maybe a flaw that you now have fixed or corrected so that this kind of thing doesn't happen in the future. Yeah. So the funny part about this is he's in the local RIA, right? And so I'd been exposed to him for at least 15 months prior to what I didn't do was ask the president of the RIA why he wasn't using him for his multifamily stuff. And I placed a bet and I bet it absolutely wrong. And me and my investors have paid dearly for it. You know, we structured the contract where he was going to get a sub, sub 10% fee, 
And when I look back at it, you know, he, he took about 16% of the revenue. And that's just, it wasn't consistent with the intent of the contract. And I'm not a big beat you up with a contract person. I feel like you should be able to look a person in the eye. Everybody understand the intent and you shake hands and you go off and do the best that you can absolutely do. I don't feel that way about that company. And I'm really disappointed that I, I think I made a poor character judgment decision because I feel like I'm pretty good at that. So what do you do now or what did you do to vet this new property management company? So what I did was I spent more time talking to them and looking at their track record for improving properties. You know, what we do, you guys do the same thing just on a larger scale, is we take challenged properties and make them operate as they should. And so what we look for today is property managers who deal with the properties that nobody else wants to deal with because they know what to do when you get in a pickle and they know when to spend money and when not to spend money. Mm-hmm. And what we found with our new property manager is, you know, things that were running at 60% expense ratios are now running at 30, 32, 33% consistently. And this is something that they do across the board. The other thing that we did was we made sure that they were owners because an owner's perspective makes a big difference, right? They're not looking to line their pockets. Their contract is super simple. We take X percentage of the revenue and that's all that we take. And so if you got late fees, we take X percentage of the late fees. If you got monthly rent, we take X percentage of that. There is no upcharge for handling turns. There is no no handyman fee. There, it's just simply a you know, small percentage. And so the percentage that was on that they agreed to was 8%? That was, yeah. Okay. And the first one was 10%, but effectively it was more like 16. No. So the first one, I believe, was 7.5%. Okay. Right? It was 7.5%. And then we paid an onboarding fee, which was for them to set up stuff in their system. I don't know why I agreed to it, but I did. And then any late fees, they took the whole late fee. Okay. That's actually what I see sometimes with the smaller properties is that they do usually take some of those extra fees because, you know, obviously you're not paying for anybody on site. So this is going to be completely offsite. So there's a little bit more extra work that they're going to have to do instead of to be able to collect, but also to place that tenant and that resident as well. Yeah. And we thought we were being, again, we thought we were being fair, but in the end, I feel like we got taken advantage of. So let's shift focus here a little bit and talk about the finance piece of it. So how did you go about financing this deal? So because this wasn't our first deal, our first deal got some press because we bought it through CBRE and we had different lenders reach out to us as a result of that. So we went back to one of the lenders that was kind of first to reach out and was really excited about working with us. And once we shared the deal with them, they thought that it made a lot of sense. And so they jumped on board and provided 80% debt on it. So with the 840000 you guys brought in 168, and then they did the rest of it? Yes. Of course, what the 168 plus the CapEx and closing costs, of course, is going to be a little bit more than that. Was this non-recourse? No. So since the loan amount was so small, it was personally guaranteed by everybody that owns more than 20% of the deal. Okay. And so was this done with a local bank? Is that what it was? 
Yeah, it's more, I guess it's a community bank, but okay. they have a presence in multiple states. And the great part is, you know, they came from Virginia with me. So I was doing work in Virginia before we made our entry into the Greensboro market and they came down with us here. And this was actually their first property in North Carolina. Okay. And now as far as the interest on that one, what did you get as far as interest? So you said 80% LTV and the interest was? 5.25. 5.25, which isn't bad for that time of year for a smaller deal. And what kind of amortization did you get? And then balloon payment. 25 year. 25 year amortization. And was it a five or a 10? It's a five. Okay. And is there any uh, like yield maintenance or step down prepaid or anything like that? Just yep. We could refi today if we wanted to, which we thought was pretty awesome. Is there a refi planned in this project? Yeah. So we're planning to refi in year three. We have guys reaching out at least once a week asking to refi the property for us already, but we want to build a little more equity in the project and make sure that we can still maintain our, you know, debt service coverage ratio of 1.5. And as far as investors are concerned, what was the total amount that you raised on this one for, from investors? I think we raised, um, make sure I'm looking through the model. Haven't looked at this thing in over a year. So I think we brought 225 in total. And I'm running these little math numbers real quick. You're right at about 125 because if you add in like two or 3% closing costs and some other additional acquisition fees and stuff like that, it'd probably be up there. I think we brought 225 in total. Okay. And how many investors did you end up having in this project? Five. Five investors. And did you do more of a JV project on this one because it was yeah. smaller instead of a full syndication? Yeah, that's our game. We do JVs. Yeah. Okay. And how long did it take you to raise that to 25 with those five? A week. Okay. So you kind of already had them and kind of off to the side, kind of waiting for you to get that next deal and just making a phone call and, you know, getting them to pony up or whatever. Yeah. I mean, three of the five guys invested in another deal with me. And so we just brought two new folks in and there were people that one guy I knew from high school and then another guy I knew from college. So it was really easy, honestly. Mm-hmm. Well, it was easier than what I thought it was going to be for the amount of money that it was. Sure, sure. And what kind of splits did you did you set up? It's an eighty twenty. Okay. So the five investors split the eighty percent, and you get the twenty. Yeah, and then one of the guys came on the loan with me and guaranteed it. Well, actually, two of them did. So actually, they each got two and a half percent, and we're taking fifteen. And then their equity. We'll get them a piece of the 80%. Our equity will get us a piece of the 80% and so on. Sure, sure. That makes sense. What kind of acquisition fees did you have on this one? Uh, just 1.5. And asset management fee? 1.5. And then do you have any other fees like at disposition or construction or anything like that? So for every capital transaction, we'll do 1.5. But you know, that only happens at refi and so. Is there a preferred return on this one? No. Okay. So you'll take that 1.5% regardless if your investors get a return. On the refi or on the sell? Either one. No. If they don't get a return, I don't take fees. Just like if we don't make money in a given month, I don't take the asset manager fee. Okay. All right. That makes sense. And what about from the construction side? Because obviously you're donating your time. So are you you know, doing anything on that side? Or is it more just like a sweat equity to make the deal even sweeter for your investors? I really want these guys to go tell their friends about it. Yeah. 
And so for me, it's let's create value for the investors. Let's build a great track record. You know, this project ended up being a bear and let's reward them for taking a bet on us on this deal. And, you know, at the end of the day, we'll make money, but Mm -hmm. that's not the primary concern right now. The primary concern is making the asset worth more and through the force appreciation and then creating value for the investors because it'll come back around, I believe. I, I plan to do this for the next 30 or 40 years. Yeah, yep, that's cool. So as far as, uh, kind of, I know I'm kind of backtracking here, but I wanted to also dive into some of the due diligence that you went through. So whether it be the financial due diligence and looking through the, doing the lease audits or even doing the walkthroughs or even having some of the inspections, was there anything that kind of like stood out to you that you can think of that, you know, uh, was thinking something that you had to take care of during that due diligence process, any hiccups? I think the most frustrating thing for me is when people commingle funds from different properties in the same account. And that happened here. And so we basically had to do forensic accounting to figure out, all right, how much money was actually coming from the property? How much was coming from the two houses that they were putting in the same bank account so that we could actually understand how much money he was actually collecting. And that's why I struggle with the cap rate on the buy, because I still don't know exactly how much money they were making. And I'm going through it again with another property that we have under contract right now is we don't know exactly how much money they're collecting. They've got multiple properties pouring into this account. And, you know, I guess for them, it's their portfolio. So it's easy for their accountant to deal with it. And they don't have any investors in with them. But, you know, for us, every property has its own bank account so that everybody can see the transactions coming and going. We believe in transparency, but I think that's the toughest piece for me is making sure we do ask for bank statements and making sure that they're not just giving us a spreadsheet because we believe anybody can make a spreadsheet, say whatever they wanted to say. And that actually came back up towards it. It was probably two days before closing. We saw another spreadsheet that had a different top line revenue number. Mm -hmm. And we started asking a lot of questions and we almost blew the deal up because being lied to doesn't work well for us. I mean, you can tell us what you want to tell us, but in the end, we believe that the truth will come out. And so for this property, we were able to get back to, all right, they gave us the real number up front. There was something wrong with what they presented later on, Mm -hmm. but there was a hour long conversation with one of the guys saying, do we still want to do this or should we just walk? And it was painful because, you know, we already had our due diligence period had expired. We'd already spent the money for the inspection report. We'd already paid for the appraisal. And so, you know, we were going to walk away from, I don't know, 10 or 12 grand, but walking away from 10 or 12 grand during due diligence is better than buying a deal at the wrong wrong number from my perspective. Mm -hmm, For sure. So I have two final questions for you that I always like to wrap up each episode with. And so the first of the two, they're kind of related, but the first one is, what did you find easy throughout the entire process on this particular deal that you may have originally thought was going to be harder? I can absolutely say the capital raise on this deal was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. I thought I was going to maybe have 10 investors to get to the 225, you know, 25,000 a piece, but my tribe came through and they, they wrote big checks and or bigger checks than I expected on the right. And they might not have known where the money was going to come from before I showed up with the deal. But within a couple of days, they had their commitments in and 
I had confidence that we were going to close on the project. Why do you think that they increased or you know wrote larger checks on this particular project? So in general, I think it's a great location. And then it's an all brick building with a fairly new roof. And so a lot of those things, you know, when you pulled up to the property, it just felt good. And I, they were familiar with Greensboro in general. And I think the other piece of it is I truly believe that they wanted to support me on this endeavor. We were in the driver's seat this time versus kind of sharing that with other people. And I think they knew before we got into the deal that I was willing to do whatever it took to make sure that the deal was successful. Mm -hmm. And so that's showing up now, right? With donating time. And if we don't make money, not taking fees and that kind of thing. And it's poor business decisions for me, but in the long term, the reputation and, you know, paying it back to those guys for believing in me and what we were doing is more important. So last question is kind of the opposite of that is, is what did you find was harder than expected during the entire process? The due diligence process, you know, this will sound a little cheesy, but when we were doing the inspections, there was this one couple who didn't have an operating kitchen sink. And so they were washing their dishes in dirty water and then taking pots and cups and throwing that water out the back door. And, you know, they had the wife had or the wife or the fiance or the girlfriend, whoever she was, you know, she was carrying around two children under two years old. Mm -hmm. And the unit was infested with roaches and I could go on and on and on about the condition. And for us, I think that was really the decision point of we have to buy this property. We've got to improve the condition that people are living in. And part of that may mean that some of them don't live there anymore because we've got to increase the rent so that we have the capital available in order to make the improvements to the property that are necessary because it costs what it costs to operate a property. And we've been doing a lot of research trying to understand what rents can actually be from a floor standpoint for you to be able to successfully operate the property because of our decision to buy class C properties. The conversation about affordable comes up frequently and we have to be careful that affordable on the resident side is also affordable on the owner side. Cause if not, you end up in a spiral where you don't have the capital available to make the improvements necessary to operate the property as it should be. And that leads to sinks not getting fixed and the property looking really bad. And then your tenants go down and you can't recover from those types of things without a capital infusion. And with a sinking asset, not a whole lot of people are willing to put up capital for that. So as we're wrapping things up here, how does somebody reach out to you if they have questions about this particular project, you know, kind of some further questions, or maybe they want to ask you some questions about some future opportunities that you might have available and uh, maybe maybe further their conversation with you. How do they get a hold of you? I really appreciate the opportunity to share that information, Dan. So our website is developing, but the E's are threes. So D3V3LOPING.com. And there's a contact us form there. And, you know, I'll be the person to respond to anybody that jumps on and mentions this interview and we can jump on the phone, do text, email, zoom, whatever it is that uh, allows us to get together and have a conversation about, you know, our perspective on 
investing and kind of the difference that we're trying to make in our small community. We're working on a thousand doors and want to impact a hundred people. So. Well, that's awesome. Both the Jerome, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to be here with us. You've been a great guest, answered a lot of great questions and uh, looking forward to continuing to follow you and also having you on a future episode as well. Dan, I'm looking forward to the summit next week. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.